why not worry? Why not? Matthew 6, verse 25 said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Why not worry? The video we just watched reminded us how often we look at the things going on around us, that we look at the things happening in our lives, and we think we have to fix it. And under our own power, we try to fix it. And we understand in a, in a never-ending cycle, the more we try to fix it, the more we realize we can't fix it, and it just compounds and compounds and goes on and on. This is another real issue that Jesus deals with in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I'm not so sure that in all that we have studied, we know we're not supposed to uh, serve money, we're supposed to serve God. We know we're supposed to have our treasure be the right treasure, not the wrong things that we chase. We know we are supposed to be single focused and we're, we understand what the Bible tells us about the law and how it's all about a matter of the heart. We understand all these things, but this worry, is the one thing that seems to affect every one of us. Everyone in the room. In fact, there is a chance people have walked in here and you are so overpowered by the worry and concern in your life that praising Jesus during our time of worship by song was difficult for you. You had trouble praising the Lord because you were burdened by what is going on in and around you. Truth is, we are created beings with physical, emotional, and mental characteristics. We are physical beings living in a physical world. Our world is not virtual. We are more than onlookers. We are active participants. We are involved. We are all in. We cannot escape what's going on around us. This interacting with the physical world initiates dozens, if not hundreds of different emotions that take place in all of our lives. Our overall attitudes and our responses to what we see, what we hear, what we feel throughout a day often are determined by the emotions we assign to that event. Any circumstance can engage our emotions as we internally experience love and anger and happiness and sadness and excitement and any other emotion you can think of. If you're looking for a good book, it's written from a secular standpoint, but if you're looking for a good book to help you initiate change both in yourself and around people or the people who are around you, the Heath brothers wrote a book called Switch. In that book, they remind us that we are made up of two different ways of thinking. We have logic and we have emotion. Emotion is real. Emotion is how God has made us. And the, the, it doesn't matter how much logic you have. If your emotions are not agreeing with it, if your emotions are not tied in, change will never take place. They, he, they liken it to a rider on an elephant. 
You are, your logic is the rider. You are the one riding this elephant. The elephant is your emotion. And it doesn't matter how much you tug and pull. It doesn't matter how much you believe you can logically figure this out and get your way out of it. You are created as an emotional being and your emotions will override your logic every time. It doesn't matter how much at night when you're laying there and you're thinking about these things that you're worrying about. It doesn't matter how much that you know that you cannot deal with it on your own. It doesn't matter how much you know that if you don't have the right emotion to tie into it, you will never make the right changes to get that to take care of itself. We assign emotion to our logic, to our events. For example, you may see your child receive an award. You are, your mind assimilates that moment in a positive manner because you naturally attach the emotions of love and pride for your child to that event. So even thinking back about it again later, you feel that love and you feel that pride well up inside of you because you have, you have assimilated pride and love to that moment. It is a good memory. And then some of us have been affected by tragedy in our lives. Negative emotions like fear and dread and anger and hurt are tied. They're imprinted into our soul in such a way that there's anything that is associated with that event. It could be the place. It could be the people. It could be even the smells in the room and the sounds that were going on with it. It wouldn't matter what the event, the circumstances, because of those emotions that are tied to it, we are now given an automatic visceral response when something reminds us of it. It's interesting. My mom and my aunt are together this morning and they're watching, they're watching us online up in northern Kentucky. And mom and I were in a car wreck when I was about two years old. You'd think, oh, that's what happened to you. No, it's... Um, but we were in a car wreck and I was in the back seat and I was thrown into the floorboard of our car when we ran into, we crashed into a loaded cement truck. You know, loaded cement trucks don't give. He didn't come through again at 8.30. It's only at, at your all service where he shows up. But the loaded cement, cement trucks don't give. And, 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 and so we crashed into this and mom was badly hurt. And it was just her and I in the car. And so I had to be re retrieved and taken, even though I wasn't hurt, I was taken to the hospital by something other than the ambulance. But I'm two years old. And, and mom tells the story, though I remember bits and pieces of that event that are imprinted on my memory because it was so tragic. Mom tells the story that if she was, if I was ever playing, if I was ever out of her sight, if a siren was coming by, she knew she better get to me because I had imprinted the sound of sirens onto that tragic event in my life and I would have a come apart because there's sirens going on. You understand what I'm talking about. You understand how we put these emotions on there. Coming right off the heels of our emotional responses to these physical interactions, our mental capabilities will engage. We can think, we analyze, we problem solve, we plan. 
These mental responses in and of themselves are good because they can lead us to action. We are created this way so that we will respond. But depending on the circumstances, these reactions may fill us with concern and worry. And what really gets us is when positive emotions, like the love for a family member, is coupled with negative emotions that accompany feelings of fear, like of the unknown, or they're accompanied with concern for their future or worry for their health and safety. You see, in our English language, the words concern and worry and anxiety are all basically the same thing. But truth is, we tend to use them in an escalating manner. A situation raises our awareness and leads us to be concerned. It's natural. Being concerned generally leads us to action. But when our actions don't seem to be enough, or we realize that there is no real action we can take, we find ourselves at the next stop on this escalation train, worry. Worry finds you awake at night. Worry finds you thinking over different scenarios. Worry over issues will pop up and cause stress and mental strain throughout your day. It moves into the physical symptoms that are associated with stress, like increased heart rate, raised blood pressure, and constricted blood vessels. Concern can lead to worry, and worry when not resolved can move to anxiety. Concern and worry is, anxiety is concern and worry that now paralyzes our problem-solving logic capabilities, and it manifests itself in physical, bodily anxiety. Chances are you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a very high probability that some here today are dealing with some of these, some very intense worries in their life. If we move from mere concern to anxiety, that is a natural progression. But friends, let me remind you that this natural progression has a supernatural antidote. Buddha, the Dalai Lama, Confucius, your personal yogi, not even Dr. Phil have the true antidote for the worry or anxiety that you face in your life. And here's why. Here's what you're waiting on. According to an English thesaurus, the opposite state of worry is calmness, assurance, confidence, being at ease, a feeling that we would refer to as peace. You can do all the meditation and breathing exercises you want. And though they may work in the moment to calm you, to bring down your blood pressure, to lower your heart rate, the remedy has come from yourself. So the confidence and assurance and ease you feel, the peace, it's fleeting. Because truth be told, we put ourselves in that situation in the first place, and we will put ourselves back in if we try to do it in our own power. We can't fix it ourselves when we are the problem. It's a never-ending cycle. The antidote then must be something greater than ourselves. Our confidence must be based on a standard that is never failing, a standard that is solid and unchanging. And if not, our minds will have just one more thing to be uncertain of, one more thing to worry about. So let's find our confidence. Let's find where our assurance and peace comes from. In Matthew chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 26 here in just a moment, and I want us to make sure we see, and if you're filling in the, the outline on the back of your bulletin, it, it, this will be your first, 
your first fill-in, according to Jesus, there are three reasons why we do not need to worry. First, he says, we do not worry because of God's care. We do not worry because of God's care. Look at Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Our Father, our Creator, he cares for his creation. According to the psalmist, it is he who actually feeds the birds of the air. But the key question here is, who are you? Who do you see yourself as? Do you have a proper understanding of who you are and who he is and your relationship to him? What is your value? God is our heavenly father. He is not a distant deity. He is not cold and uncalculated. He is not someone who just puts us out there and says, fend for yourself. He is our father. And Jesus asks here a rhetorical question. He says, are you not more valuable than they are? In fact, the Greek, Greek grammatical sentence construction here has a way of representing rhetorical questions in a way that the stated, the stated obvious answer is there. We don't, we don't have to try to figure it out. The way they understood it, he knew that, they knew that Jesus was saying, are you not of more value than they? And the answer is yes, of course you are. Yes, of course you are. We are the crown of his creation. Look at Psalm chapter eight, beginning in verse three. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you, are, yet you care for him? You are the great creator, he's saying. You have created the entire universe. It doesn't matter if you think the universe is 6,000 years old or billions of years old. In this instance, it doesn't matter how old you think it is. What is important is that you know God created it. And that no matter how far out scientists say that they can go with a telescope, it doesn't matter. Whatever they find the furthest out there, God created that too. And he created you. And the psalmist is saying, what kind of God is this? Who are you that in you are that great, you are that, in, that you're that incredible, that you are that unexplainable? I'm almost getting into Chris Tomlin here. You're that, you know, you, I can't remember the song now, Taylor, but you know what I'm talking about. You're, it's, it's that moment that you understand that even with as great as God is, he's mindful of you. He cares for you. And he goes on and he says in verse five, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Have you considered that out of all God has created, only mankind was made in his image? Only mankind was, was crowned in his glory. Only mankind can say that Jesus died for them. That is who this God is. That is who Yahweh is in our life as our heavenly father. He gives us his glory and his honor. It says in verse six, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put us in charge, basically. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep 
and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You have put us in charge. You care for us. If you are going to care for them, then we can assume how much more than are you going to care for us? Because we are not a mere creation. Brothers and sisters, we are his children. And we have had discussions. We have had references to him being a good good father. And me as an earthly father, I want to do the best thing for the needs of my children. I want to do the best things to help them grow and be what they need to be. I want to supply for them all that they could possibly need and all they could possibly think of. And I fail. And God being a good, good father never fails. I feel like we need to spend more time as a people in the Old Testament. I feel like we need to be spending more time reading about the story of the Hebrews, reading the story of the Israelites and how God provided for them and continued to provide for them. And even when they were against him, even when they didn't follow exactly like he said, he still met their needs. In discipline, they had to walk in the wilderness for 40 years. They had to wander. They couldn't enter the promised land. Do you remember this? Even in their discipline of not doing what they were supposed to do, God still provided by saying that the sandals on their feet never wore out for 40 years. I have to get new shoes every six months. I'm kind of a shoe horse. Is that a right word? Is that the way you say that, Caleb? I'm, I like shoes. You know, sure, you're with me. But I get new shoes about every six months because of, of wearing them out. Maybe not on the outside, but I wear the insides out. God provided, even when they were being disciplined for disobedience, God provided for them. If he feeds the birds of the air, how much more will he care for us? And why? Don't miss what verse 26 said. It says, he feeds the birds of the, your heavenly father feeds the birds of the air. Not their heavenly father. He reminds us he is your heavenly father and your heavenly father is gonna provide for their needs. If he's gonna provide for something other than, than his children's needs, you can be sure he is going to provide for the needs of his children. He is your heavenly father. But sometimes in our lives, we have a wrong understanding of this relationship with God. Sometimes we don't agree with or we don't see in our own lives or we haven't studied enough or come to a, an intimate knowledge enough and sometimes we wonder if God is even there. Sometimes we might think he's there but he doesn't care. Maybe we have that feeling that he just spun the worlds into existence and turned us loose to take care of ourselves, that he is not a God who's involved in our everyday needs but scripture tells us he is. And then there's the view that maybe he is, he's involved, he cares, he wants to help you, but maybe he's just not powerful enough to help you with your circumstances. He might help other people, but he's not helping me. Jesus finishes this thought in verse 27 when he says, and which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? He's talking about food. He's talking about our daily physical needs that he's told us to pray about just a little bit ago in a few scriptures before He's telling us to, to pray for these things and all of these necessary things that our lives need. How can we add any time to our lives by worry? How often does, does what you worry about end up never coming to pass? 
and you've wasted time and energy and emotion and stress on something that never happens in the first place. In fact, it can't, worry can't extend our lives. We know that it will actually decrease the length of our lives. And this is another one of those rhetorical questions that the answer is obvious. How can you add to the length of your life by worry? The obvious answer is you can't. We do not need to worry because of God's care for our lives. But the second reason Jesus gives is because of God's provision. Because of God's provision. Look at chapter 6, verse 28. He says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Jesus is likely given this sermon on a Galilean hillside. And scholars who have been there and have, have walked these same hillsides know that those, those hillsides are covered with wild flowers. They're probably covered with purple anemones and blue irises, which would have reminded those who were there to hear it of the splendor of Solomon, the purple robes, the fine things that he wore. It would have been an easy object lesson for Jesus to compare those flowers to Solomon, whose fame for his wealth being displayed displayed in his clothing had become legendary. The people of Israel knew who Solomon was. They understood the way he dressed. They understood that even the queen of Sheba came to see if all was right, to see if it was exactly like he, she heard it was, and that it, all the hype was to be believed. Jesus, uh, Solomon was absolutely that rich and that powerful and that well-dressed, but not even Solomon was dressed as beautifully as these wildflowers, Jesus said. These wildflowers that were simply there to clothe the grass. How temporal is that? How temporal is the grass that would be there one moment and then turned into kindling for a fire the next? When they were dead and dry, they were used to restart and start their hot coals of fire. We worry. We worry to the point of anxiety about the things of life. The audience of this sermon, who was made up mostly of folks who were part of a poor Jewish community, they would be fully aware of what it took to meet these particular needs. That We don't understand the need of having to find daily food. We don't always understand the need of having to have our clothes as they did. The clothes were not a fashion statement for this Jewish community. It was safety. It was security. It was for pure warmth. They weren't worried about going to a fashion show. They weren't worried about wearing the correct labels. For them, it wasn't about the clothing, it was about their security and safety. We have the same issues. It just takes different, different, different views. Different, it shows up differently in our lives. They understood how much they were de 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 dependent, excuse me, can't even talk. They were dependent on the, the harvest. They were dependent on the rain and the weather. They were dependent on their food coming from, from, from all that God would provide. And he was making the point, your food is coming from God because he provides the weather that, that grows it. They understood how important it was and how hard it was to get this the next thing of clothing. They had to first be able to afford the raw material if they didn't grow it for themselves. If they didn't have sheep where they could get the wool, they had to go get it for themselves. They didn't have a closet full of clothes. They had maybe two changes of clothes. 
And they understood how long it would take to work these, these raw materials that turned them in even to thread that could be woven into a garment. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying, and we do too if we stop and think. Though it may not be food, it may not be clothing. There are still our physical daily needs. There are still the things that make us feel secure. What makes you feel secure? What makes you feel like that you can handle tomorrow? What makes you feel like that tomorrow might not work out the way you want it to? What causes you to worry about these things? Jesus is saying, don't you know if God is gonna feed the birds and he's gonna clothe the grass, he is going to take care of his child. But maybe, just maybe, we struggle here because we don't always see ourselves in the right light. We don't always have that intimate relationship with our heavenly Father. Maybe we only see him as just a God who's in control, but not intimately concerned about us. When we lean on money, we're leaning on our own strength and our own power and our own ability to provide resources to meet our personal needs. We find ourselves filled with anxiety because we have zero control over the things of this world. We have zero control over things that causes us to worry. So we must trust God. We pray and we ask and we serve him. We, don't, we gotta make sure we don't miss this, that Jesus said when anxiety, when worry is abounding, when we are hindered with the concerns of this life, he refers to us as those of little faith. Those of little faith. You see it right there in verse 30. It's still on the screen. We are those of little faith. Five times in the Gospels, four times in Matthew alone, Jesus uses the phrasing, you of little faith. But it's interesting that every time he uses it, He's not speaking to Pharisees. He's not speaking to the religious leaders. He's not speaking to unbelievers and pagans. He is speaking directly to his followers, his disciples, those who are the closest to him. Remember when we said way back at the end of chapter four and beginning of chapter five, when we started the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his disciples. The rest of the crowd is just sitting in and listening. Everything we have been studying is going directly to his disciples. He is saying to his disciples, you have little faith. Makes me feel a little bit of comfort to know I'm in good company. If Matthew, Mark, and John, and, and Mary, and all of those who are following Jesus could be claimed to have little faith, how much better can that make me feel about my own? It is his disciples he is telling to stop worrying. It's his disciples, he is saying, needs more faith. Not faith in general, but more faith. Catch this. He did not say you have no faith, and that's good news, because you have faith. But the inference is your faith just needs to grow. How do we grow our faith? If it's true that worry is a symptom of lack of trust, and it is, and you say, well, Kenan, I don't agree with you. Well, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with Jesus because he's the one who said it. I've, I've met people. I've heard it on Facebook. Well, I don't hear it on Facebook. I read it on Facebook. I hear people say, I'm tired of being told that my worry means I don't trust God. But that's what Jesus just said. So if he's always right, and he is, 
then we need to sit back and think, what is Jesus telling me about my own life? What is he telling me about my own faith? I pray for God to provide my daily needs. Is it lip service or do you believe he'll truly provide? You say, I pray and I recognize that I'm worth more than the birds of the air. Do you really? Or is that just a platitude that you've held onto that you don't really put into action? You say God can provide because you see his provision around you. Do you really believe it? Then why do you stress over things of life that he says and he has shown that he will take care of? So yes, when, what it comes down to is when we are filled with worry, we are not filled with trust and faith. You see, belief, believing is an action word. It's not passive. When we say we believe God, our actions have to match that. Our mental capacity has to match that. Our emotional life has to match that. All of those things, our, our physical life, our, our mental life, our emotional life, they all are impacted by and they impact our spiritual life. What do we really believe? Jesus takes it even further to show that our lack of faith is a lack of belief a lack of trusting God when he says, and you should not miss this, he says, do not worry because that's what unbelievers do. That's what unbelievers do. Look at verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. He knows that you need them. He knows you need them more than you know you need them. When he uses the word Gentiles here, he's not speaking of race. He's not speaking of any kind of creed. What he is speaking of in the book of Matthew, when Gentiles is used, it's those who are not followers of God. Those who do not value the things God says to value. So Gentiles in our vernacular would be unbelievers, people who do not trust God. So my question for us today is, is he all-knowing? The answer is yes. Is he all-powerful? The answer is yes. Is he able to provide for you? Yes. Is he willing to provide for you? Yes. So how do we then grow our faith if all of that is true? If he is all-powerful, if he is all-knowing, if he knows what you need even better than you know what you need, if he has promised if he's gonna feed the birds, he's also gonna take care of you. If he's promised he's gonna clothe the grass, he's also gonna take care of you. If there's nothing in your life that he doesn't know you need, but you need it, and you know he's gonna take care of it because the scripture shows him to be faithful and true, how do we grow in this so we are no longer of little faith? He says, by seeking God's kingdom. We know this verse. We've heard this verse. All of our lives growing up in church, we've, we've probably even in years gone by, if you're old enough that you sang in the youth choir at the right time, you sang this verse. I'm not gonna do that, just so y'all are good. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus just said that worrying about the things of this world, what they will eat, what they will drink, what they will wear, their basic necessities of life, it leads Gentiles or those who do not value the things of God to look to themselves 
for such provision? Are you looking to yourself for such provision? When it comes to the necessities of life, do you think that you just handle those and God only handles the big things? Or do you have such an intimate relationship with God that you understand that even the basic things he is actually providing for you? Do you have that perspective? Are you seeking God's kingdom or are you seeking your kingdom through your, meeting your own daily needs and then adding God to your life for the big, big decisions? You see, that doesn't work. That leaves you laying awake at night. That leaves you when your mind kicks into neutral and, and the life slows down just a moment that you start to worry about these things. Dr. Michael Wilkins put it this way. He said, those with faith in God's provision will not worry and will reject the pursuits and values of unbelievers. An absence of inappropriate anxiety derives from an appropriate understanding of God's provision and his creature's responsibilities and priorities of life. You say, I have a responsibility? There's, there's something in my life I'm supposed to be doing. I thought God's gonna take care of it. Well, God is going to take care of it. But now this, you see the ser sermon, it's coming back full circle. Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. As citizens of God's kingdom, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are serving him as our master. We are seeking the right treasure, not the wrong treasure that we are trying to devote ourselves in our own desire, or we are not devoting ourselves to our own desires, but instead we are singularly, singularly devoted to the things God has for us. We have responsibilities and we have priorities. We seek him. We seek more knowledge of him. We seek to know more about what he wants for his children. And our intimate relationship with him grows our faith. The more we get to know him and we then have eyes to understand these provisions that he's doing, the more we will naturally be devoted to him because we see what he's doing. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting where their list of prayer requests are 13 miles long, but then you ask for praise reports and it's crickets? We've all been there because we don't address God with praise. We address him for our own petitions and our own needs and our own desires. We treat him like a genie in a bottle rather than praising him and being grateful for what he has accomplished and done in our lives. Amen. We need to understand that knowing what we know and trusting who we trust Jesus can tell us in verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You see, back in verse 25, when he said, do not be anxious, in the Greek, that is actually stop worrying. It's a command to cease an action. The Greek writes it that way. So Jesus is teaching his disciples who apparently had an issue with worry. They had an issue with the normal things of life. Just being a believer in Jesus doesn't mean normal things of life don't get us down. The disciples have this worry and Jesus is going to tell them, stop worrying. And then he says, here's why you can. You can because, because I wanna tell you, your heavenly father cares for you and your heavenly father will provide for you. And please stop worrying because that's what the non-believers do. Don't be like them. 
But when we learn these things from him, when we have a moment and we've had this relationship and we're seeking the things of God and we are now in a place of, of seeing the, what the real treasure is and we understand what single focus toward him is in all areas of our life and when we see that he is our only master and we will serve no one else but him, see how that all goes back to last week? Now he says, don't even worry. Don't start the action. I've told you why and if you truly believe these things, if you truly believe that he cares for you, if he truly believes that he, has, he will provide for you, if you truly understand that that kind of living is the way unbelievers live, then there's no need to even start the worrying. Grow your faith. And then we can say like Paul in Philippians 4, chapter 6, excuse me, Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, don't miss this word, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. I told you, I told you. So I know some of you came in here and you are so overwhelmed by what is happening in your world that you found it difficult to even praise him. Sometimes we have to go back to the basics and change our attitude to be thankful to him. If our attitude is more about give me the things I need and not thank you for what you've already given me, then we are not going to be able to just praise him with a hallelujah. I love that song we sang just before the video. I throw up my hands and praise him again and again because all that I have is a hallelujah. All I have to offer him, and I have nothing to give him except a praise the Lord. And it's not verbal. It's not simply me raising the words, praise the Lord. It's a heart condition. I truly want to praise him for all he has done in my life. And remember what we told you at the very beginning, what the opposite of worry and concern and anxiety was, it's peace. Look what Paul says in verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The band's gonna come. I wanna remind you as they're coming forward to get ready for a, a hymn of worship. Our faith, our trust is in him. He is our standard that never fails. And if you say, you say, Kenan, I want to know how to get rid of this worry in my life. I, want to, I don't want you walking out here with another platitude. If you can't use what we've preached and taught this morning, then I've wasted my time. And you've wasted yours. Paul gives us how to receive this peace of God. How to have, even when the world is upside down, topsy-turvy and caving in all around us, we can do without the money, we can do without the health, but as long as we have peace in our heart, we can feel satisfied. And he says, you do that through prayer with thanksgiving. Praise him. We seek first what he would have for us. We seek his treasure. We seek his devotion. We seek him as our master. We do the things 
that he would have us do. And it just causes us to love him more and to have that peace that no one understands. You ever had that peace? You ever been in that moment where you can't explain it? Life was hard at that moment, but you had peace. My son Andrew, I'll tell you this story and I'll close. My son Andrew is named after a man who was my right hand in student ministry at the time. Andy. Man, it's been 19 years. Andy took his last breath at 32 years old. Two twin boys. He was my high school Sunday school teacher in the student ministry. He and I, he was my associate, you could say. We did everything together. He died in February of 2004. Peg was pregnant with Andrew. Hence his name. We were struggling what are we going to name this boy of ours? We had tried like three different names and none of them seemed right. I came home that day. Peg and I cried together. And I said, um, what do you think about Andrew Keenan? She said, I was thinking the same thing. His funeral comes along in a couple of days and his bride who is now a 30 year old 29 year old widow stands before a congregation of high school students because Andy was a high school teacher and she said many of you have looked down on me because you don't think I'm grieving hard enough and she says I can't tell you why I'm grieving differently than you, other than I have a peace of God that no one else can explain. We've all been there. I don't know what's going on in your life. I know some of your lives. I know, I know, but I know as many people are here this morning, as many people are watching this online, we have that many different things happening in our lives today. I don't know what this message was meant for you for. But I know some of you need to walk out of here differently today than you walked in. Some of you need the peace of God. You need to trust. It's not just words we say. You need to believe it in all you do and seek for it to understand that God loves you. He is your heavenly father and he will provide in his time. 